want you to picture the scene with me. For over 140 years, the city of Jerusalem, God's city, the walls around the city are crumbled down. E even though many people believe that the walls could never be rebuilt, God raised up one man to rebuild the walls. You say, what's the big deal about that? You, you need to understand the significance of walls in this time. They provided protection for a city. They allowed the city to decide who came into the city and who came out of the city. They allowed the city to protect themselves. You had to go through the walls to attack the city. It, it allowed the city to be able to grow produce and raise cattle and everything, knowing that there was safety inside the walls. And the walls have now been tore down for 140 years. Jerusalem was in poverty. They had given up hope. They were in the process of trying to rebuild as the king had allowed, the king that had overtaken them and taken them captive had allowed some of the people to return. They were trying to rebuild this once mighty city, but with the walls tore down, it was impossible. As they looked and they surveyed the landscape, there was no way they could rebuild the walls. They didn't have the money to rebuild the walls. They didn't have the resources to rebuild the walls. They didn't have the knowledge to rebuild the walls. And so what they did is what so many of us do. They just kept spinning their tires. It was like Groundhog Day. They would get up every day trying to do something different, but it was the same thing every day. Living in fear of never knowing when the enemy was going to come, never knowing when all the work you were putting in was going to be destroyed. If the city of Jerusalem was ever going to return to what it once was, the walls had to be rebuilt. And God called one man, an ordinary cupbearer, an ordinary man by every Stretch of the imagination. He was the cupbearer to the king, meaning whenever the king wanted to take a drink of wine, the cupbearer took the first sip to make sure it wasn't poison. If he got to live, the king got to drink. This one man was raised up to be an extraordinary leader who changed the world. Listen to me. I believe with everything that is in me, you were created to change the world. I believe with everything that is in me, I'm a broken record when it comes to this message. I believe God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't have mess-ups. God doesn't make junk. What we see as screw-ups, God sees as potential. And God created every single person in this room. He shaped you, and he formed you, and he made you. And all the things that you went through in your life were uniquely qualifying you for the mission that God has for you. The problem is most people will come to the end of their life never having lived the purpose for their life. The large majority of people will come to their deathbed and they'll look back over their life and their biggest regret will not be what they accomplished. It will be not be how much money they made. It will not be how many toys they had. But they will look back and know, man, I was designed and I was created and I was formed for this unique thing and I never had the testicular fortitude to go out and chase that dream. The large majority of people will live their life never fulfilling the purpose they were created for. Last week we talked about what it takes to figure out what your unique calling is. Every person has a different calling on their life. And so many people can't chase their calling, they can't pursue their calling because they have no idea what their calling is. This week I want to empower you, I want to equip you to realize the steps it takes within you to chase that dream. What happened last week is you begin to think about the thing you were called for. Maybe it was helping those in addiction. Maybe it was helping those in um, 
coming. Someone told me, I, I just really feel burdened for those that are in the sex trafficking to be able to pull out of that and be able to get a start. Somebody told me that they felt very called to help children with autism, and I'll get into that later because they have a child with autism. Somebody told me that they, they felt very called to help people that are going through hard times in their marriage. Hey, listen, somebody told me that they felt very called to do something about all the foster children in our community, and they were sharing story with me after story with me after story with me of things they felt called to do because we laid the groundwork on how you know what your calling is. Once you know your calling, you've got to take some steps in your calling. So we're going to dive in today and we're going to find out how you can turn your burden into a blessing. How you can take the burden that you have in life and turn it into actual ministry. In case you missed last week, again, let me bring you up to, to speed real, 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 real quick. The year is 444 B.C. I told you the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down for 140 years. The people have felt hopeless. They're in despair. They're depressed. They think they'll never have protection again. They felt like their best days were behind them. And what a sad day when you think your best days are behind you. When your memories exceed your vision, you're in a dangerous place. They felt like they were an embarrassment to God. And one day, a guy named Nehemiah is chilling around town. Nehemiah had a government job. He had a cush job. I told you, he was the cupbearer to the king. That's a pretty sweet gig until it's not a sweet gig. I mean, as long as no one's poisoning the king, it's a good gig. You get to hang out with the king all day. You get to hang out with the queen all day. Man, you know you're getting paid. The king travels somewhere nice. You get to travel somewhere nice. The king throws a big shindig. You get to throw a big shindig. The king's having uh, leadership and military meetings. You're in there. You're in everything. You go home and you ain't got to deal with any of it. And it's a great job until someone poisons the king and you take it first and you die. Then it's not such a great job. But then you're dead and you didn't know it wasn't a great job. It's a good job. Nehemiah is chilling around town, and he runs into some old acquaintances from back in Jerusalem. Now, here's what I believe. I believe Nehemiah didn't give two craps about what was going on in Jerusalem. I believe he was trying to make small talk because I have done this myself. Hey, man, good to see you. What's going on? Man, what's going on back in the hometown? I think he was just thinking they'd say something quick. He'd be like, man, that sounds good. Got to go back to my cush job, my government job. But when he asked, hey, what's going on back in the hometown? The people that he asked said, man, things back home are horrible. Things back home are horrendous. What's going on back home? And his brother said, man, the walls are tore down. The gates have been burned up. And the people back home are feeling hopeless. And when Nehemiah heard this, it literally changed his world. He didn't get up that day thinking his world would be changed. He didn't get up that day thinking he would realize his calling in life. He didn't get up today and realize, man, God was going to make him so uncomfortable that he would leave the comfort zone and go out into the discomfort zone of chasing God. It devastated him. It destroyed him. And if you remember, last week we looked at the kind of person that God would use. And we looked at some characteristics of what God would use. And we talked about the things that Nehemiah went through and how you know that the calling in your life was a calling and not an idea. Because I told you, I'm an idea person. And I've got to learn to decipher in my life what are just cool ideas and what are things that I actually want to implement in my life. And we talked about the fact that, that Nehemiah literally was broken over it. He bowed down and he started crying. He was so upset about it. He couldn't contain his emotions when he heard the news. And you know what? There's a lot of tragic things that go on in our world that I hear about. I think they're rough, but they don't break me. We talked about embracing our own burden. He sat down and he cried. Then the Bible says he knelt down and he began to pray. He began to pray through this situation. God, I've got this calling. I've got this burden. But is this really what you're calling me to do? And if you haven't bathed whatever it is that you're thinking about doing in prayer, then I can promise you it's going to go down the right thing. And then he did something that we're going to talk about today. He brokenhearted over it. He prayed about it. Then he stood up and said, I'm willing to take action. We live in a day and time where a lot of people have burdens over stuff. They're willing to pray over stuff. But when it comes time to taking action on stuff, 
They're not willing to take action in that area. If you're not willing to lay it all on the line and leave everything you have and all the comfort of what you have to chase whatever it is that's been laid on your heart, then chances are that's not the thing you're supposed to do. Because when you truly have the right burden, when you truly have the right calling, when you truly have the right purpose, you'll be willing to walk away from everything to chase that calling. Nehemiah heard it. He said, somebody has got to do something, and it might as well be me. And God used the cupbearer. I went back and really studied a cupbearer. A cupbearer didn't mean you were an educated man. It didn't mean you were the smartest man, because, again, how smart do you got to be to be able to drink something? They said the number one requirement for being a cupbearer is you had to be decent-looking. Because you were in the presence of the king all the time. And when the people came in to see the king, they saw everybody that was associated. So Nehemiah was a good-looking dude, but he was probably a dumb guy. Because his job in life was to sip a little bit of wine. And God used this guy who wasn't a building contractor, who wasn't royalty, who wasn't a priest, who wasn't a king. He wasn't a guy that people looked at and said, man, that's a leader. And he used this guy to go back to Jerusalem, OBTW, a thousand miles away, to a place he'd never been, to rally people he had never met, to rebuild a wall he'd never seen. And Nehemiah not only rebuilt the wall, he rebuilt the wall and restored hope and faith to Jerusalem in 52 days. I'm here to tell you today you can change your life in 52 days. You say, I mean, Gary, I'm 40-something years old, and I've always wondered what my purpose is. It's time to stop wondering, baby, and it's time to start doing. I don't care how old you are or how long you've run from God or how long you've avoided the calling in your life. It's time to get serious because here's the deal. The world is too important. People are too important. The needs are too great for you not to live out the calling that God has on your life. <laughs> Two people get it today. Let's try this, because I know you hung over. I saw you last night. I was with you. I know you're dragging today. No offense, some of you, I can still smell it on you when you walked in and hugged my neck today. I know that Phil can go all night long and a little bit longer, and you guys are rookies, and you can't hang, and you're dragging, and I'm just proud of you that you showed up. But here's the deal. I ain't, I ain't staying on an island by myself today. We're going to count to three, and you're going to say amen, okay? One. Two, three. Amen. We're going to do it again because that sucked. One, two, three. Amen. Man, act like you're excited to be in the house of God. Hey, I saw ex how excited some of you get about being in a trashy bar. If a trashy bar gets you that excited, the house of God ought to get you much more excited. I'm just saying. We can get so excited about the ball game and act like we're dead at the house of God. We'll stand up all night in the bar while the band's playing and sit on our butt doing nothing during worship of our living Savior. Something's wrong. But oh, by the way, that has nothing to do with the sermon, so I'll move on today. Ordinary cupbearer. Used for greatness. That part of the sermon was free today. Nehemiah. <laughs> what I love about it is God didn't use him based on his position. He wasn't the one the world would look at and say, that's who I would pick to be used. He didn't use him based on his position, but he used him based on his passion. I go to work at a co-working space every day. And this co-working space has turned into what I like to refer to as the Christian ghetto. Every Christian Bible study and every Christian group and every Christian workout group. Like, there's so much Christian ghetto stuff. You know what I mean? Instead of being like part of the world, we create our own ghetto. You know what I mean? You can't work out at a regular gym. you got to work out at a Christian gym, apparently. You know, it drives me crazy, and I sit there, and I cringe all day long. And my best friend runs, and he texts me all day. He's like, just, I know you're about to snap at that couple. Just be calm. I know you're about to. But I listen to them all day long, and I listen to how educated they are and how much knowledge they have. And then I listen to them all day long talk about what they're going to do. I've been going there for about six months now, and the same people are there. And at the end of the day, I just want to look at them one day and say, how long are we going to talk about it before we actually 
do something about it. About a month ago, there was a group in there talking about homelessness in Cherokee County. They didn't know who I was. And I listened to them talk about all their ideas on how to start an, a homeless shelter and this and that. And they said, well, you know there's a church that opens their doors to the homeless. And I said, One of them said, but have you heard about that church? I said, oh, I have not. <laughs> Listening. And I proceeded to listen to these people who've never been to our shelter. Oh, by the way, the only emergency warming shelter in Cherokee County. And talk about all the things that's wrong about how we do it and how it's this and how. And I literally want to look at them and say, Jesus Christ, at least we're doing something. <laughs> I'm sure it can be done better. I'm sure it could probably be more organized. I'm sure it could be more effective. But shut up, because at least we're doing it, and you're sitting here talking about it over your latte. But they had all the answers, because they'd read a couple of books. You can have all the knowledge, but if you're not willing to do something, it doesn't do you much. Could you be proud of me? I didn't say anything that day. About a month later, someone asked me who I was in that group, and I said, I'm here. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm the pastor at Action Church. The conversation ended very quickly. If you're taking notes, here's what you need to understand. You make a difference in this world. To make a difference in this world, you don't have to be the best. You just have to care the most. To make a difference in this world, you don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the one that everyone else thinks, oh man, that's the person God is going to use. You can be an ordinary cupbearer who's willing to be used, who cares more than anyone else. And God says, I'm not looking for the most educated, I'm looking for the most available. Matter of fact, very few of us actually see ourselves as world changers. How many of you would say, Gary, I'm so confident in my abilities that I know that I know that I know I'm a world changer? Would you raise your hand? Awesome. About seven or eight of you. Now, how many of you would say this? When I look in the mirror, I don't see someone who could end homelessness. I don't see someone who could end poverty. I don't see someone who could, in the fact that the foster care system is overflowing, you, you look at me and say, I, I, I just don't see the person that God could use. How many of you to be honest and say, that's me? Awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I can relate to that, actually. I moved to Canton 15, 16 years ago to start a church. I'd never been to Canton, Georgia in my life before I decided to start a church in Canton, Georgia. I was 28 years old. Before I had started church in Canton, I had moved to Iowa and started a church. The church from hell, I lovingly refer to it as. It was the most horrible experience of my life. I grew that church from zero people to about 300 people, which is a huge church for Iowa. Back down to about 30 people. We were in reverse growth when I left. God all of a sudden called me to leave. <laughs> you know. I, I didn't really see somebody that thought, man, I can go start a church. I had barely, I know you guys think I'm so smart because I come across as just so educated. But I had barely graduated Bible college. I had actually failed preaching 101. I literally, in my preaching 101 class, we had to preach to the class. In front of the class, I thought I did really good. I can still tell you what I preached on to this day. And the teacher looked at me and said, because I was really known throughout the country for college ministry at that time. I'd really built some big college ministries. And he said, I just think you ought to stick with college ministry. Oh, okay. But I, but I really wanted to go start a church. 
He said, you know what? They do these things called church planting assessments. Go to this assessment weekend. So I drove to the middle of nowhere, Georgia, to this resort. It wasn't a resort, it was like a camp. And there was like 50 people there. And they assessed us all. <laughs> and at the end, they bring you in. and they, It's very thorough. They, your skill test, your leadership, your this, your that. And they looked at me and said, man, we just don't think you're called to start churches. Oh. And they didn't know what I did because that was the thing. You don't tell them what you do before because they won't unbite. I said, have you ever thought about college ministry? I was like, oh, okay, I've been doing that. You know? So I left there, decided I was going to start a church, and told everybody I was going to start a church. And at this time, man, the economy was booming, and starting churches was hot. This was about 15, 16 years ago. Everybody I knew was starting churches. And everyone I knew was raising literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to go start churches. They were bringing on full-time staff, and I tried to raise money, and I raised, I raised, I can remember it like it was yesterday, $1,303. So, failed Bible college. Got, well, didn't fail, I passed, but failed preaching 101. Went to church planning assessment. They told me I wasn't called to start a church. Found a church that was willing to help me start a church if I moved to Athens because they had college students. <laughs> so, I said, well, I want to go to Canton. Oh, we don't want to put any money in Canton. So I tried to raise money, couldn't raise money. So then, doing what any good person would do, I went and took out a personal loan of $25,000, uprooted my family, and I moved to Canton, Georgia to start a church. If there was ever anybody who wasn't called to start a church, by the world standards, it was probably me. So I moved to Canton, Georgia, because I think, man, there's no one here starting a church. And all of a sudden, I'm in Canton, Georgia, and I meet this guy. And you ever just meet that guy, and he's the guy? Like, you're a dude, and you're like, I'm not gay, but if I was gay... I'm just saying. He was the quarterback for Vanderbilt University when he was in college. He was a good-looking dude. He had raised $350,000. And you know how I realized he was coming to Canton to start a church? Because I was watching Sports Center one night, and there was a commercial for him starting a church. That's how much money this joker had. So I'm like, great, there's another guy. So I meet him. Hey, let's go to lunch. We went to Applebee's, you know, star quarterback. I'm goo-goo-eyed over him, and I'm questioning whether I'm gay or not. And, you know, like, I want to quit everything and go on staff with this guy, you know. And, like, he's got all this money, and he just looks sharp, and he was real muscular. And, you know, I mean, I'm a sexy beast, but he was real muscular. And he was telling me what they're going to do, and they're going to launch. And I said, when are, you, when are you planning on starting? The Sunday after Labor Day. Oh, us too. <laughs> That's the same day we were going to start. The Sunday after Labor Day. So, being what any good, desperate person would do, I decided we were starting the first Sunday in August. <laughs> I didn't have the money, but we were going to beat him and at least be the first. He had all of them. I mean, he has doctorate. He was sharp. That church grew that I started. I don't mean because of me. I'm just showing it because God can use anybody. In a movie theater, we grew to about 1,000 people. That guy never grew to more than 100 people. In a year, he had blown through $350,000, moved back to Indiana. Was now, to this day, I still stalk him right now because I, I like to send him messages. Ha, ha, ha. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. But um, now he's on staff at a church. And I said, not that I'm delighting in what happened. There. I'm just saying, God uses who he wants to use. I looked at this guy and was willing to give up what I thought was my dream to chase this guy and go be part of what he was doing. And God's like, hey, you idiot, you redneck hillbilly from Decula, Georgia. I want to use you. So if God can use me, by God, he can use you. <clears throat> I don't even want to go into the story of this church. We broke every rule there was. God uses who he wants to use. I tell people all the time, I don't even know if I'm called to pastor. But I know that I know that I know I'm called to Canton. And I found no other way to impact people in Canton like I can doing this. And if I ever find that way, I'll leave here and go do that. Because as much as I love you and love this church, I feel more called to this city than I feel called to anything. 
If God can use me, he can use you. God specializes in using people we think he could never use. And what I want to do today is I want to show you some things from the life of Nehemiah. I want to show you some things that you have to do after you get zeroed in on what your burden is. Maybe you got your burden last week. If you didn't get it, go back and listen to the message again. Go back and listen to the message again. Go back and listen to the message again. And listen to it over and over and over. And see what breaks your heart. And see what you're praying about. And see what you're willing to stand up and take action. Because eventually God will reveal it to you. And once he reveals it to you, then you got to do that last step and take action. And I want to show you from the life of Nehemiah three things very quickly that he did once he realized what his burden was. Once you realize the big thing your burden is, you got to zero it in. You must define your mission clearly. You must define your mission clearly. When we're up in the clouds, it's a big vision. I want to end hunger. You ain't going to end hunger in the world. Not today. What you start today, though, might one day end hunger in the world. But you got to zero in and define that vision. I want to show you how Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah says, man, I hear the hometowns in ruins. I hear the people have no hope. I hear the people are desperate. Don't miss this. There's a thousand things Nehemiah could have done in Jerusalem to help the people. But he clearly defined his vision. He said, first of all, he said, I prayed to the God of heaven. Let me tell you something. Let me make this as clear as possible. If your vision is not big enough to need prayer, your vision is not big enough. If prayer is not necessary for you to fulfill your vision, it's the wrong vision. If you can do the vision God's laid in your heart without the help of God, then it's not the vision God has given you. Because the vision God has given you will be so big that, hey, when it happens, you won't get the credit. He will. It ought to be so big that if God's not in it, it falls apart. I call them BHAGs, man. You ought to have big Hairy, audacious goals. Your goals ought to rock people's world. People ought to laugh when they hear that. You ought to know that unless God gets involved in it, you're going to fall flat on your face. That's good preaching. Somebody say amen again. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Because the king had come to him and said, man, what's wrong with you? You don't look right. Because Nehemiah was broken. Over the city. The king was around Nehemiah every day. He said, man, what is going on with you? He's smart. Before he answered, he prayed. And he said, I answered the king if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried. And watch this. He clearly defines his mission. So that I, so that I can rebuild the wall. King's like, what's wrong with you? Why shouldn't I be upset? My hometown is ruined. The people have no hope. They have no future. Would you send me back very clearly so I can rebuild the wall? The king had no doubt what Nehemiah's goal was. He had no doubt what Nehemiah's vision was. He had no doubt on what Nehemiah planned to do. Very, very simply, there were a thousand things that he could have done. He could have looked at the king and said, please send me back home. I just want to help improve the economy. He said, hand me back home. I just want to go and I'm going to get rid of the corrupt politicians. He could have said, send me back home, and I'm going to get rid of all the cats. That would have been a mission I could have got behind if I was the king. You're going to get rid of all the cats? You got my blessing, dude. I don't need you as cupbearer. Go. Just saying. Get rid of the cats. But in one crisp statement, he says, I'm going to rebuild the wall. I need you to send me to rebuild the wall. He said, if I rebuild the wall, the corrupt politicians won't be able to get in. If I rebuild the wall, the economy will start to improve. 
If I rebuild the wall, the city can govern itself. Well, if I rebuild the wall, it won't be open to attack. King, you want to know what I want to do? I want to go back home. But I don't want to just go back home. I'm going back home to rebuild the wall. Listen to me today. When you decide what you want to do, you better focus it and narrow it down and shave it down and zero it in. So when someone asks you what is it you feel called to do, it ought to not be some long explanation. You ought to be able to answer it in one sentence. Hey, here's what I'm called to do. I'm called to rebuild the wall. You know why you can't get busy with your vision? Because you don't really know how clear your vision is. It's too vague. It's too big. Last week I talked to you and you started to think about your burdens. And now what I want to do is I want you to take that burden and I want you to narrow it down into a very crisp, very clear statement. What's God calling you to do? Take it from something broad to something big. A guy came up to me last week or so. He said, you know what I feel called to do? I feel called to get my family out of debt. He said, my goal is to be debt-free by Christmas 2021 in every area except my house. Guess what? That's a clear vision. Guess what? That's a vision that when he goes to his kids, hey, what's the family vision? Our vision is to be debt-free by 2021. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It's clear. What are we trying to do? Get out of debt. When are we trying to get out of debt? By Christmas. Christmas will win. Christmas 2021. He took a big picture vision, and he made it very attainable. It's a very strong, a 12-year-old could recite that. It's something that will motivate. You're talking about going and doing this. Hey, we could go to this vacation when the kids are going to be like, hey, Dad, that sounds like fun, but hey, I thought we wanted to be debt-free by 2021. Nobody will rally around you till everyone understands the clarity of the vision. Someone talked to me this week and they said, I have a vision to start transitional housing for addicts who just got out of jail. He didn't just say transitional housing in a vague context. He didn't just say transitional housing for addicts. He said, I have a heart to start transitional housing for addicts who just got out of jail. Guess what? I understand that vision. I can get it. You know, I had a guy send me a message this week, and I was so behind this vision. I felt like God moved on me the moment I heard it. I felt like it was clear. The, the heavens opened up, and the angel spoke to me. And this guy said, i got to be honest with you. He said, I think my vision is, by the time I'm 50 years old, to donate $1 million to Action Church. I said, praise God. I can get behind that vision. It's clear. It's concise. And guess what he just found? He found a mentor in his vision. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. That is what the vision was. If you can't define your vision, you can't do it. If you can't define your vision, you can't do it. I think I've shared with you before this. I love the Peanuts cartoon. And um, who was the little whiny kid? Linus? That was, was Linus the one that had the, the blanket? Okay, it wasn't him then. Um, it was one of the characters. And they're shooting an arrow at the fence. And what's the old grumpy girl? Lucy comes and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm target practicing. She said, there's no target on the fence. He said, yeah, that way I never miss. <laughs> That's how some of you live your life with your vision. You don't have a target, so you never miss. Oh, but you never get better, and you never accomplish anything. You've got to take that burden and you've got to take it down into bite-sized chunks. If you can't define it, you can't do it. Don't just say, I, want, I just want to help the poor. What does that mean? There's 10 million ways you can help the poor. I just want to help addicts. What does that mean? There's 10 million and one ways you can help an addict. And really, at the end of the day, you can't help an addict until they want to help themselves. But that's another story for another day and we'll get on that some other time. And some of you ought to learn that. One of my friends this week, I say he's a friend, I don't know him. He's in the co-working space I work at. And we were talking, and he was talking about his burden. I said, what's your burden? He said, I want to help kids with disabilities. I said, man, that's awesome. I said, which ones? Well, what do you mean? I said, man, there's a million disabilities out there. Which ones? He said, oh. He said, well, I've got a son with autism. And, and so I want to help out kids with autism. I said, that's cool. We're getting somewhere. I said, what does it mean to help them? He was getting frustrated. 
What do you mean? I said, a thousand ways you can help them. I said, how do you want to help kids with autism? This is what he said. He said, I wrote it down because I didn't want to miss it. He said, I'd like to help them be fully functioning in society. Well, okay. See, it went from, I just want to help kids with disabilities. I want to help kids with autism be fully functioning members of society. So then I said, well, let's break it down a little bit more. I said, which ones? What do you mean? He was getting frustrated. I said, a lot of kids with autism that need to be fully functioning. I said, do you want to help the ones in Norway? He's just looking at me. I said, oh, you want to help the ones in China? Ones in West Virginia? He said, I want to help the ones right here in Cherokee County. Oh. Because a few minutes ago, you said you just had this vague vision that you want to help kids with disability. Through answering a couple of questions, now you want to help kids with autism be fully functioning members of society. You want to help kids in Cherokee County be fully functioning members of society. Oh. I understand that. I can get behind that. That seems obtainable to me. Now when he's casting vision to people, he has a clear, concise sentence instead of some vague up in the clouds. I just want to help kids with disabilities. You know what that sentence allows him to do? It allows him to say yes to certain things, and it allows him to say no to certain things. And some of you need to learn to say no to certain things. Because if it's different than the vision you have for your life, you need to say no to it. You've got to narrow that down. If you can't define it, you can't do it. I'm telling you, this is life-changing stuff. Very specific. There's no one here that doesn't know my vision unless you're new. Because I say it all the time. I want to create a church service where people, no matter their background, can come and be taught in the Bible in a way they understand. Anyone that knows me knows that. My vision is not to start a church. My vision is not to have the best kids area. It's someone's vision in this church. My vision is not to have a, a food. I told you all this. I'm not going to repeat it. My vision is Sunday morning, 10 to 1130. So guess what gets my energy? Sunday morning, 10 to 1130. Drive some of y'all crazy. But that's okay. Because that's my vision. I don't owe you an explanation for my vision. So that's why when you come to me, you're like, you know what we ought to do? I'm just like, nah. Oh, what? You didn't even hear it? Nah. Because what you really mean is, Gary, you know what you should do? No. This is what I do. I don't apologize for it. When, when we pick songs, when we pick sermon series, when we decide what we're going to do, when we go, th- there's been many times me and Phil have been talking, and I'm like, man, that sounds really cool. But if you'd never had a church background, and you'd never come to church, and you came in the service, would you understand what's being said? Oh, that probably wouldn't work. Let's change it. This is for outsiders. Now, we're glad you insiders are here. But we make no bones about it. I've always said this, and this offends people, and it is what it is. If I have to choose between insiders and outsiders, outsiders always win. Because here's why. You insiders, well, I never want to lose you, and I never want you to go somewhere else. I know if you leave here, you'll find another church and go to. That person who's never been to church, they've been burned by church, or they've given up on church, and they come to this door, they might leave this church and never go anywhere else. Can't have that. In my personal life, in my, in my secular business life, my mission is very clearly, I want to see people live the life they dream of living. I want to see people live the life they dream of living. I don't know what that is, but when I hear this, this is what I envision. Like, Let's go get it. You know why I can be so focused on those two things? Because they're clearly defined. You know why you can't be focused on what you feel called to do? Because it's too vague. After that, you got to plan carefully. You got to define it clearly. You got to plan it carefully. We've already got the what. Now, here's the how we're going to rebuild the wall. We got to talk about the how if we're going to make it happen. When you fail to plan, You plan to fail. We think we can fly off the cuff and just roll with it. Watch how detailed Nehemiah was in his vision. Now, what was his vision? To go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. But he didn't just have some cloud attitude. He said, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? 
It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. The king asked him specific questions. He had specific times. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Tran Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a ladder to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. The king said, what is it you want to do? I want to rebuild the wall. Hey, BTW there, king. I can't just show up and rebuild a wall. I need some things. The first thing he said, he said, I need letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. That was the, the delta. That was the land he was going to go through. Remember, he had to travel 1,000 miles from where he was to Jerusalem. This wasn't getting on a plane. This wasn't getting on a train. This wasn't getting on a, a whatever. This was getting on a camel, a donkey, and riding 1,000 miles. It was dangerous. He was going to go through countries where people didn't know him. He said, I need a letter from the king. So when these people stop me and they ask me what you're doing, the king says, the letter says, give him safe passage. He knew without that letter, he'd never arrive to Jerusalem. Then the second thing he said, I said, I need a letter to Asaph. That was the keeper of the king's forest. That's pimp stuff right there. He said, it's going to take wood to rebuild this wall. I don't got any money. But if I had a letter from you, king, and I went to the keeper of the forest, and it said, give him all the wood he wants, guess what? He'll give me all the wood I want. <laughs> I read a commentary this week, and it said the fact that he found out the keeper of the forest's name was amazing. This wouldn't have been some public knowledge that everyone would have known. This would have been a job that someone was assigned and forgotten about. He couldn't get on Google and ask. He did his research. He asked somebody who asked somebody who, because he wanted to have a plan. He knew I need to get there safely. And when I get there, I need to have material to build. He began to work behind the scenes for his plan. It wasn't enough just to have the vision. What's the plan for the vision? I think sometimes we as Christians, we tend to think, well, the planning process is not very spiritual. I've got an old pastor friend in my life. He's been very good to me, but he's very old school. And so any time that I type studying today, working on my sermon, he sends me a private message every time. Why don't you quit studying and just open your Bible on Sunday and see where the Lord leads? I said, well, it'd be bad. Just be led by the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, you're right, because the Holy Spirit only works on Sunday morning. He can't work on Wednesday when I'm studying and I open my Bible. I'm like, God, where should I go? Hey, Holy Spirit, lead me as I study. I'm not a very good preacher. I got to study. I got to plan. I got to prepare. I wish I could get up here and just fly off the cuff and wing it. I can't do it. If I did, we'd have one sermon. Luke 15. God went after the one. We're the church for the one. We don't care about anything else. That's my only sermon I can do by the, off the cuff. We just miss out on the planning. The way I'm able to get up here and study, I get up here and preach... It's because I bust my butt all week. I study. I learn. I go back to previous sermons. I go read commentaries. I go listen to what other preachers think. They're like, you just do it. No, 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 no. I put the work in. I plan. I know where the series is going. That's the only way it's going to make sense. you got to plan for your thing. It's funny. People see me put on events. And all they see when I put on events is what I do on social media. So they think, man, I'm going to go put an event on and it's going to draw thousands of people because that's what Gary does. What you don't see is the hundreds of emails behind the scenes. You don't see all the negotiating with bands, all the negotiating with sound crews, all the negotiating with cities. You don't see the meetings with the police departments. You don't see the meetings with the fire marshals. You don't miss all the emails where I have to respond to hundreds of people asking every little detail that they have. You don't see me networking. You don't see me going to other festivals where I can meet people and cast vision to them about what we're trying to do. You don't see all that work. All they see is me on social media and think, oh my God, Gary plays on social media all day and look how great his events are. I want to do that. And then they go do it and they suck and you know why they suck because they didn't put the work in they didn't plan and when you have no plan when you what you fail to plan you plan to fail you got to have a plan the reason so many of you have set out on your burden and it's fallen on your face and it's failed is because you had no plan 
You didn't think through all the things that are going to come at you. Everything that happens, there's a plan for. Everything that goes on. We have mistakes at every event I do. The difference is you don't see them. I put a wrestling show on the other night. I told my wife that I said, you know something? We had a match the night and the wrong guy won. He said, how's that happen? Guy zoned out for a second, forgot to get his shoulders off the mat, and he, and he, he, he was supposed to win, and guess what? He lost. You say, what'd you do? We didn't do nothing. We rolled with it because we'd planned it. Guess what? The fans didn't know that he wasn't supposed to win. We didn't get out there and make a big deal out of it. We had a plan backstage. Hey, here was the big deal. It affected storylines. you got to be thinking three and four months in advance. Now we had to change a bunch of stuff because of that. But guess what? Because we planned, we're able to adapt. Once you get that clear vision, you got to have a plan in place. you got to go after it. you got to make it happen. <laughs> Man. Let me give you some practical advice. Create a to-do list. And do not put the end result down on your to-do list. Plan. I want to eliminate poverty. That's overwhelming. You're going to freeze up and not know what to do. What's the easiest way to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Simply put down the next step in the process. If you want to eliminate poverty, the next step would be, man, find out everybody in town that's doing whatever they can to eliminate poverty. That's an obtainable step. After you've done that, begin to ask yourself, okay, what needs are not being met in our community? Cool. Okay, I want to do this. Now I've got to have that. Now because I have that, I've got to have start doing it step by step by step. Define the next step and simply take the next step. We want to go from here to here. That's hard. No matter how hard I try, I can't in one step make it over there. But I can make it in one step, two steps, Three steps, four steps, five steps, six steps, seven steps. I just put a plan together, seven steps, and I got here. If I tried to jump over there, I'd embarrass myself. I'd break my ankle. I'd end up in the hospital. I'd look like a fool, and I wouldn't make it. And I'd be really discouraged. I'd be really frustrated, but that's how you operate your vision. And that's why most visions never happen. Define the step and take the next step. You've got this big burden. Like I said, the next step might be finding out who in your city is doing the same thing. The next step might be to call and make an appointment with someone. The next step might be interviewing that someone. The next step might be asking them, hey, how do you get grants for this and grants for that? I don't know what the next step is, but put a plan together. I always start with the end result and start working backwards. Practical stuff, but this is what Nehemiah did. He had a plan, and that's why the plan worked in 52 days. You're a guy and you want a date? I'm going to give you a step. You ready? Single guys. How many single guys we got out there? Derek, raise your hand. Don't walk away. <laughs> single guys. Want a date. Here's the next step. Take a bath. <laughs> Another step. Use deodorant. You see, that's the basic stuff. No, it wasn't. I was at the ice house last night, standing next to people who needed to take a bath and put on deodorant. I watched a guy try to pick up a woman. I thought to myself, there's no way in God's green earth he's picking up that. He is the stinkiest dude I have ever been around in my life. I wanted to vomit. He looked at me. I'm an a-hole. He said, that didn't go good. I said, you stink. <laughs> what? I said, I don't know what's going on with you, man. And I know you don't know me. I got real cocky when Big John and all the action people were there. I said, but you don't smell good. I thought he was going to be, he said, really? I watched him leave like five minutes later. Hope he went and took a bath. Hey, next step after you take a bath and get in, hey guys, check it out. Move out of your mom's basement. I'm just giving you steps, trying to help you. Hey, want another step? Sell the Xbox. She wants a man. And then here's the last step. Ask her out. I don't understand why I can't get in. Ask them out. I'm just too scared to. Well, they're never going to say yes. But what if they say no? But what if they say yes? Sometimes you've got to take a risk. That's what Nehemiah does. <laughs> he has a very specific plan. I need letters. I need timber. I need this. Then he travels 
to Jerusalem, a thousand miles. Again, no train, no plane, no car. He travels there. You think he would get there and be so excited he'd start rallying the troops. I don't have time, but as he gets there, he sees there for three days before he lets anyone know he's there. And during those three days, it says he borrows a horse. And at night, when no one's around, he goes out and he begins to explore the walls. He begins to look at the walls. Because he'd heard about the destruction, but he'd never seen the destruction. He had to go see the destruction for himself. Why? To come up with a plan. To come up with an idea on how he was going to go about it. Because when it came time for the next step, he wanted to have his ducks in a row. So he got to town and he began to explore. I can't tell you how many times when I moved to Canton 15, 16 years ago, I simply drove around this town. I drove up and down every road, every nook and cranny. I learned where this segment of people lived and that segment of people. Because I'll be danged. Golly danged. If someone's going to know the town I'm called to better than I do. He got out there and he pursued and he looked and he planned. So what we got to do is you got this burden. Brandon, you messed me this week said, man, I got this burden. Guess what? You need to get it divine down. Then you got to come up with a plan. And sorry to pick on you, but you just jumped in my vision right there and that's what happens when you sit close. <laughs> and then the last thing that happens, ain't that right, Derek? You can never do it alone. You got to inspire people passionately. You got to inspire people. You'll never make a difference by yourself. If you want to change the world, you got to have people buy in to your vision. But the only way they're going to buy into your vision is if they clearly understand it and they know the plan on how to make it happen. Because remember, it's not their vision. Then I said to them, oh, he's walked around for three days. Now he's gathered all these people. Hey, people, you don't know me. I'm Nehemiah. King sent me. But I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? He identifies the problem. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer live in disgrace. I'm sure they're like... Cool, sounds great. Who is this guy? And I also told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. So he cast the vision. Then he told them the plan. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah knew he couldn't build a wall by himself. You see the trouble we're in. He points out the obvious. Look at the walls. They're an embarrassment to us. This is not right. It's humiliating. Our God is not honored in this. Look at this. It's not acceptable. He says, hey, everyone, we can do this. Hey, look at the meth problem we have in this town. Look at the heroin problem we have in this town. Look at the hunger problem that we have in this town. Look at the gang problem we have in this town. Look at the marriages falling apart in our town. Look at the children being neglected in this town. Look at the problem. You've got to be able to cast a problem, and you ought to know the problem better than anyone else. You know what I can say? Look at the 74% of the people in Canton, Georgia, who do not attend church on Sunday morning. Why do they not attend church on Sunday morning? Their issue is not God. Most of them believe in Jesus. Their issue is the church. So when I stand up and say, hey, here's the issue. Church is irrelevant to people's life. Church doesn't meet people where they're at. People don't feel accepted in church. They don't feel loved in church. They feel judged by church. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to, to sit there and ponder on it. Maybe I can sing it. I can bring it. I can do whatever because it is the burden of my heart. I have to define the mission clearly. And I have cast the need all the time. Can you do that with your vision? Come on, let's rebuild the wall. He says, I told him about the gracious hand of my God who was on me and what the king had said to me. And so they began the good work. 
He said, here's the problem. Now, here's the plan. Here's the plan at Action Church. We're going to do church different than anyone else. I didn't say better than anyone else. I didn't say the right way and everyone else is the wrong way. I said, we're going to do it different than everyone else. It ain't going to be the prettiest group of people. It's not going to be the prettiest building. It's not going to be the fanciest. This is going to have black curtains and ugly floors and bar tables that don't match and chairs that don't match that are falling apart because wrestlers have hit other people in the head with them. But guess what? When they walk through those doors, by the way, the doors that are supposed to open on their own and haven't opened on their own in five years because they've been broke since the day we got the building and never had the money to fix them. But we don't care. Someone can stand there and open but when they walk in, they're going to get a hug and feel loved and be like, hey, I don't care where you're at in life, you're accepted here. And it works. And someone says, well, I wish we'd get bigger. Here's what normally happens. I like to say that we're just a launching pad. We take those people who've never come to church, they come here. They get to a stage where they're like, I want something more. I'm like, hey, that's cool. Love you. You've probably outgrown us. What? What? I'm not saying you've got to go anywhere, but remember, we're for those that don't do church. So if you want something more, you probably need, here's a great church you ought to go check out. Here, here's a, oh, you need that? Awesome, I get it. Here's a great church you need to go check out. I tell people all the time, other churches in town ought to bring me on staff. I send more people to their churches than, any, than they bring in, I can guarantee you. And they always leave, but here's the thing. They always come back home. Some of them leave for a month, some of them leave for a year. They always wander back through those doors. Because there's just something special about what y'all have created here. you got to rally people. Here's what I know. I am the easiest person to replace at Action Church. 100%. I'm lazy. I just preach on Sunday. I can find someone to yell at you on Sunday. Grady does a great job at it. Spencer from Reformation does a great job at it. I, I can find someone to yell at you. We can't find someone to be greeters and run the kids' area and do the food pantry and do the clothing. I'm easy to replace around here. This church doesn't happen because of me. It might have been my vision and I might have left it, but it happens because people were inspired passionately to be part of it. You guys make this place what it is. All my events I do, they're led by volunteers, and people always say, how do you get volunteers to do that? I've just got good people in my life who love me. I've invested in their lives. I've been there for them, and they're there for me. It's an amazing concept. It's amazing how that works, ain't it, when you inspire people. So they begin their work. They made plans carefully. Man, you got to get some passion about what you're called to do. Because if you're not passionate about it, no one else will be. John Wesley said, light yourself on fire with passion. And people will come from miles to watch you burn. People come to me and say, I just feel called to blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I feel called to slip my wrist now. (laughs) I want to hear the passion. I want to hear it drip from your mouth. I I want it to consume you. I want to know it's all you think about. And when I know it's all you think about, I might not even be called to do it, but I'm going to jump on board because I, I admire your passion. I get it, man. We think about this place all the time. I do. It's my passion. I get you, don't you? got jobs and work and wives. It, I get that. But I like to think my passion's contagious enough you show up every Sunday. Phil's passion's contagious enough you show up every Sunday. you got to have passion. You get excited about something. You come with a clearly defined plan. Mission statement. You come with a clearly defined plan of how it's going to happen. And watch people get excited about it. <laughs> He said, do you think this is acceptable to God? Look at this wall. It's a disgrace. He said, we're not honoring our fathers. We're not honoring our mothers. We're not building a city that's going to protect the future of our children and our grand." He said, this is embarrassing. Let's rebuild the wall. God touched the heart of a king who had no reason to empower one of his servants to go rebuild a wall of a city that could one day rise up and go against him. Think about that for a minute. It benefited the king for the walls of Jerusalem to be torn down. They were no threat to him. But Nehemiah had a clear-cut vision. Nehemiah had a clear-cut plan. Nehemiah had a clear-cut passion. And even the king was like, man, go do it. You inspired me to go do it. Once you step out to do it, though, You better make sure that mission's clear. You better make sure that plan's in place. You better make sure the passion is there to inspire the people. 
Because next week we're going to get real negative. Because the minute you do it, the critics are going to come out. The minute you do it, the enemies are going to come out. The minute you do it, the naysayers are going to tell you why it can't be done. I'm telling you, I've watched this in every pattern of my life. It doesn't matter if it's church-related. It doesn't matter if it's my barbecue and uh, craft beer festival-related. It doesn't matter if it's wrestling-related. It doesn't matter if it's marriage-related. It doesn't matter if it's my children-related. Anytime you set out to live your passion, there's going to be people come along and tell you why it won't work, why you're stupid to do it. Why you shouldn't do it. They're going to criticize. They're going to tear you down. Because here's why. Misery loves company. And people who don't have the balls to go out and chase their vision don't want to see you go out and chase yours. They know they're losers. They know they're failures. They know they can't get their crap together. And they don't want to see you get yours together because it reminds them of everything they've done wrong in their life. Happened to Nehemiah. Old Sam Ballot came along. A guy named Tobiah came along. A guy named Geshem came along. And they tried to tear down everything Nehemiah was doing. All that passion. All that planning. All that clear-cut mission. Even Nehemiah started to question for a brief moment because of the critics, but we'll talk about that next week.